Hey friends, welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Today we've got a special crossover episode from the Fresh Text Podcast. You might recall Fresh Text being a number of episodes that we ran under the Wesley Seminary Podcast umbrella earlier on. It has since spun off and is its own podcast hosted by my good friend and colleague, Dr. John Drury, and produced by some great folks as well. Fresh Text Podcast serves to discuss the upcoming Sunday's lectionary reading. Today's episode is a discussion between John and myself around the upcoming lectionary passage from the Old Testament, which is from Isaiah. The episode's a couple of weeks old, but you'll get a feel for what Fresh Text is all about. If you like the episode, hop on over and check out Fresh Text and see how you might be part of its listenership and enjoy the resources it makes available on a weekly basis as well. If not, just enjoy this episode as part of the Wesley Seminary Podcast Library. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day. Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars get together and open up a seasonally appropriate scripture passage and dig into it and see what observations and insights, suggestions we can offer to anyone who's listening in, but especially uh, preachers and teachers and pastors who might be uh, leading others in the study and learning of these texts, preparing sermons, teachings, what have you. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. And my guest this week is Aaron Perry. Aaron Perry teaches uh, with me at Wesley Seminary and is a teacher of leadership and of pastoral theology and is one of my most frequent guests and co-hosts on this show. And I'm so glad to have him uh, back this week. Our text for the week is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. This is the second week of Advent, and so we uh, are working through some texts, uh, mostly from Isaiah, during this Advent season. And so uh, thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to rate and review and subscribe and share, and we hope you enjoy the show. Um, so yeah, our text this week is, uh, this is for the second Sunday of Advent. The Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. You want to read or pray this week? What's your mood? Uh, I'll read. Go for it. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, 
the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. And there ends our reading. The word of the God the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we begin by giving you thanks for your very word, the words from your mouth that brought all things into being, and the word that you speak through your many prophets at many times in many places, but especially your words spoken through the prophet Isaiah, and even this particular word here that has been now handed down to us through the centuries. And we ask, Lord, for a kind of big ask, but I'll go for it anyway, that, that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon us, that Aaron and I and all who listen in across uh, space and time would be uh, granted a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would abide upon us for this hour, that we may have the wisdom and understanding and readiness to obey and seek justice and all of the ways that your Spirit can be at work so that we may encounter your living word, not merely as words on a page, but words on a page that uh, give voice to your living word, having been spoken, speaking now, and that will speak again. And so we entrust ourselves to your spirit to open us to your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, welcome to Advent and to our first uh, reading from Isaiah together. This is yeah. the second week of Advent. We just uh, taped a not-too-long-ago episode with uh, Steve Deneff, oh, our local church pastor, uh, on another passage from Isaiah, chapter 2. So, uh, yeah, we're going to spend some time in Isaiah for a couple weeks here. Um, so, what, what captures your imagination uh, at first glance? Um, as we open this text today? Uh, I mean, the imagery jumps out from verses six to to eight, you know, jumps out. It's hard to get away from that imagery. Wolf, live with the lamb, leopard with the goat, calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. Then the next one, cow will feed with the bear, young will lie down together, lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Um, yeah. Interesting, at the very least. <laughs> you know, you got these tremendous contrasts, yeah. and where you would think, okay, if these animals are going to stay in peace, it would take a lot of power. It would take somebody very strong. But <laughs> instead, it's the child who's who's doing this. Well, that's good insight. And the poetry here that builds up, so in verse 6, you know, you've got these three pairs, right? Wolf and lamb, leopard and young goat, uh, calf and young lion, and then the little boy, right? The turn. And then you get a similar pattern 
of three pairs, right? You get cow and bear, and then the young of the cow and the bear together, their children, and then a lion and the ox, and then again, a child, but this time a nursing child, so even younger Mm -hmm. than a little boy or little child playing in the hole of the cobra. And then you get the wean child, right? So so it, it like shifts. At first glance, it felt like it's kind of animal, 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 you know, human child, animal, 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 human child. And you get the doublet of human child in there. Um, and then only then in verse nine, does it switch away from that imagery into something explicitly explicit God talk, right? Where God says they will not hurt or destroy my holy mountain. Yeah. But for eight verses straight, it's all just animals and kids. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um which creates that kind of expectation of what's this getting at? Like you said, the, that insight of yours of you're expecting some kind of, this could be a picture of dominance, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, yeah, yeah, all these animals are in their pens because of some kind of dominant power. Um, but instead it's this kind of, some kind of reordered relationship between all of these animals mm-hmm. such that, you know, a little kid just is marching in the head of them all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, in, the innocence of the, of the child is, is bound up in the, the peacefulness of the, of the animals. You know, it's not, it's not like they remain animals, but there's just good order and structure. Like the, somebody's grabbing them both by the scruff of the neck to keep them apart. You right. know, he's not, not holding back the, the ferocity of, of one animal at the, at the, for the safety of the other. It's just, this is just the way of things. This is just the way huh. things, the way things are. Yeah, and verse 9 then, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain um, the the expectation that there's the threat of – that there's danger here is recognized and – but it's not I will – you know, it's the statement isn't like you said, a, a power statement in verse 9a. It's not, but I will keep them, you know, from hurting the children or something. It's just they will not hurt or destroy anyone in my holy – you know. Destroying in all my holy mountain. And and 9b, as that unfolds, the reason for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That there's this way that seemingly those that those characters and animals that are involved in the previous verses will know the Lord in a way that keeps them from acting in ways that are are up to this point have been very natural ways of acting. Oh man, that's that's awesome. And that immediately makes me think. It really does raise the question, and we could come back to it later if we want, but that last language of the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord, this could be attributed to sort of literal animals and some kind of transformation of, you know, the cosmos, which I'm totally open to, if that's the correct interpretation. Having said that, this reference to knowledge at the end does uh, make me wonder if uh, what whether or not each animal is associated with a particular nation or not, Mm. that this could be imagery of all the nations, Mm. right? And especially given some of what's been happening in the previous chapters, I can imagine the child here as imagery for God's own son, Israel, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, And represented in the king who would be spoken of as a son of God. And then to have all these other nations that are a threat to Israel all the time. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you know, at peace with each other and most importantly, at peace with, you know, God's own child, God's Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not, 
I'm not certain of that reading, but the last line suggests it because the notion of, you know, oxen and, you know, wolves, you know, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That sounds like a reference to the revelation of God to the nations, right? That suggests the things that God does, the judgments he meets out are to, so that they will know that I am the Lord, right? That's a recurring theme in the, in the, I don't know how you react to that hypothesis, but. Well, I'm thinking of, I think of Daniel and his, the, the beastly language that he certainly uses. So you've got Daniel will use language of leopard, bear, Mm -hmm. and, um, terrible beast. I can't think of the fourth on the, off the top of my head. But so Daniel's got some of the same language. At the same time, I'm trying to think about what's the, uh, the reference, I'm trying to think of, of elsewhere Isaiah uses animal language that, that seems to be about animals. Um, uh, I'm trying, it's, it's from Eugene Peterson. I read it, Eugene Peterson, um, about the, the lion meditating the goat on the goat. Ah. You know, he's, he's chewing on the goat, right? And God being praised in that action. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to think of where that is in Isaiah, which I could find it quite easily if I was, well, had my let's phone, do but live Google. Live Google. Live Google right now. <laughs> but I'm trying, I mean, that, that's what comes to mind is, as well, that I think there's other places that it seems uh, Isaiah uses animal language to be uh, about animals. But yeah, of as course. A, as animals, literal for the sake of wisdom yeah, in that yeah. case, but I'm going to check right now. Isaiah. Might not be Isaiah, but let's find out. Lion. Yeah, here we Well, 65. No. Nah. Nah, it's just the same image again. What's the image? No luck. Wolf and lamb will feed together. Lion will each draw like the ox. Okay, that's not the but one. But there could was... be a translational thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I'd have to look more into that. But well, does that passage give uh, any indication one way or another on your hypothesis? Well, let's take a look. Of course, at a Isaiah sixty-five, so different, but. Um, Probably how to create new heavens and a new earth. So that's much more apocalyptic language. Um, former things will not be remembered. They won't come to mind. Um, youth will die at a hundred years. He who fall, f- fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse, that kind of stuff. Um, and then you get the a short version there. The, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will each draw like the ox. Um, but the food of the servant will be dust. The food of mm. the serpent, again, there you get a little bit more apocalyptic imagery. They do no harm nor destruction on all my holy mountains. So you really get the final line mm-hmm. of Isaiah. That's the final mm-hmm. sentence of Isaiah. Really harking back to this imagery here. Um, but more explicitly identified, again, as kind of an end, end of the age thing, right? New heavens, new earth. You don't have that language explicitly here. Yeah. Right here, it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more tied to the political history of Israel when the la- the language of the root of Jesse, right, the branch from the root of Jesse, is very explicitly Davidic. Right, this is Jesse, David's son, and so the promise that a king would be on David's throne. Then in that day, the nations. There we go, verse ten. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse who stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious, right? That rest, that his throne, right? The resting place of the, of the Davidic King 
around whom all the nations are gathered in. Um, what are you thinking? I'm, I'm, I'm seeing your wheels turning over there. <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. That's all right. <laughs> well, what, what came to mind was I'm wondering, uh, I want to go back to see, is there a way to tease out um, how, uh, what, so for Daniel, the, the different beasts represent different nations and you can, you can piece those together. Yeah. And yeah. I'm wondering, is there something specific? Is there a way to connect one of Isaiah's animals with one of the kingdoms that communicates something about them that would be without this leadership, horrific mm. and predatory, but under this, the leadership of this child becomes something winsome and, and re- redemptive, right? Can be redeemed mm-hmm. to be a, a twisting way so that the knowledge that these nations have of God actually still remains a, a kind of idiosyncratic knowledge right they they know god in a way that the other nations do not because of their history because of their right, the way geography. A wolf would know right <laughs> yeah does one nation know in as as a wolf would know and does another nation know as a as uh, a leopard would know and right and so on and so forth yeah i mean i i would want to say a few things to that the first would be that i think your your overall instinct seems dead right to me that that the the wolf and the lamb, the leopard, et cetera, are not turned into children, right? Mm-hmm. So the imagery is the redemption and bringing into a kind of shalom-like peace of the nations as nations, not a reduction of all of them so that the you know wolves and lions are turned into little mini Israels, right? If the if 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 I'm taking the imagery right there, um, but precisely as wolf, kind of uh, the. The danger has been removed, but the basic nature and character has been kind of redeemed and is brought into line. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of overall read is, I think, very attractive and I think captures perhaps a bit of what, uh, what Isaiah is up to. As to like specific nations going with specific, there'd be two things that come to mind. One is, especially the first 40 chapters or 39 chapters of Isaiah. I mean, he's operating a lot more in a kind of classical Hebrew parallelism where you'd be disinclined to think that there's a kind of allegorical meaning to each line, right? It's usually trying to make the same point two ways, right? Um, So wolf will dwell with the lamb. Well, that's kind of the same as leopard lying down with the goat, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not like, Oh, those are four different specific nations. Right. Whereas when you get to Daniel and, and debatedly later parts of Isaiah, perhaps, but definitely Daniel would be, Sure. What would be referred to as apocalyptic rather than prophetic mm-hmm. discourse. Not that that's a strict distinction, but it's worth introducing for our listeners who may not be familiar with that distinction. I know you know it um, because it's sometimes easy to because so much of this imagery is influenced, say, the book of Revelation, which is definitely written more in the style of Daniel, um, where each thing seems to symbol- symbolize a specific nation or an event. Right. The, the early chapters of Isaiah are much more oriented towards a kind of overall atmosphere is being pa- painted here of. Dangerous things no longer dangerous, mm-hmm. right? Um, which, you know, the in terms of what nations, though, I mean, historically, uh, you know, we're thinking Assyrians, you know, uh, possibly the Babylonians as well. But I mean, these are the, the kinds of pretty, as you mentioned, horrifying nations that have engaged in uh, all kinds of practices of terror and domination. And to kind of have them just pacified mm-hmm. is, a, is a pretty um, radical vision. Mm. And that it's just the knowledge of the Lord that makes the difference, yeah. <laughs> as you pointed out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And and part of that knowledge in this connection 
is seeing how the Lord doles out justice through the branch that yeah. that grows out, right? There's, um, he will not judge by what he sees or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge, yeah. with justice he will give decisions, he will strike the earth with his rod of his mouth, right, speaking of judgment, and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So that this knowledge of of Israel's God comes through Israel's king and is really knowledge. It's not something that they are trying to uh, overcome to teach the nations about God. That's how they know him, by how he acts justly and by how he brings good judgment. Oh, that's really good because I I just said it in passing earlier from the – in terms of the the prophetic motif of God will go off for 40 verses about all the destruction that (laughs) – He's going to get ready to do, especially in Ezekiel, but it's all over Jeremiah and and Isaiah as well a little bit. Um, But even back in Exodus, you'll see it where God will say, I'm going to do this stuff. Then they, the nations will know, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, the Lord is God or that I am the Lord or that my name is, right, uh, is the Lord, right? So this kind of notion that the, 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 the record, even the word recognition might be helpful here, right? That the recognition of the Lordship of the God of Israel, right? Is the sort of purpose and function of the judgment that God meets out, even when that judgment has its harsh side, right? That has the purpose of revelation. It's not just an end in itself, right? Um, It's a reckoning. Yeah. Reckoning. Yeah. Right. So which conveniently rhythms with the word recognize, right? Mm-hmm. So he reckons in order to be recognized. Mm-hmm. And, but I didn't even think until you pointed that out that that same pattern is working out as it were, like imminently, uh, within the pattern of how the root of Jesse reigns, right? That this Davidic king or whatever is that this new king is going to be reigning righteously. And it's not clear that he he's reigning over the nations, but rather it's maybe it could be that he's just I don't know we, this is maybe something to debate a little bit, but he's it could be the 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 righteousness with which he judges and reckons Israel's own life that then draws right. It's that line in verse ten. Then in that day. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse. How did you put? How did yours put it? Verse ten. Uh, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. Rally to. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, it's it's the nations as nations kind of coming mm-hmm. to, right, entrusting themselves to, uh, willingly submitting to, um, the, the root of Jesse. Because it's the root of Jesse that this 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 uh, this son of David is reigning in this just way. Mm. I think you're really onto something. <clears throat> it's not just knowledge of God is like, oh, there is a God. <laughs> this no, isn't no, no, about no. theism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, right? This no. is about justice, right? I'm thinking of uh, even the language from Genesis and the mission given to the the uh, initial people. Um, uh, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, right? The command to go out from the garden and to <laughs> to uh, take the prototype that was Eden and to bring that order and structure and beauty to the rest of the world. And and when I read through that, I mean, Israel is the place where that just that mission 
just get started all over again, right? Mm-hmm. With the temp- the temple is tabernacle and the temple is properly ordered and structured and and Israel is, is consistently meant to be this thing. And again, this this is the mission that's it's ongoing here as well. Right? Like the the earth will bear this order, the earth will bear this structure and and the benefits of it. Right, this camaraderie, this connection, this, this shalom, as you say, it's going to go on. Um, but now it's happening with justice in mind, right? It's it's not it's not a dismissal of all the horrors that have gone on. It oh, takes yeah. one who is setting things right, and so um, I, I think of it as a a real missional. There's a way to think of it as a real missional text mm-hmm. to give flavor to what does uh, being fruitful and multiplying look like. In a post-fall world, it is one that takes justice. Yeah. You know, and, and it's not a justice that's dis, it, I think this is part of the, maybe what the Isaiah is getting at when he says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he mm. hears with his ears, that this is not idiosyncratic judgment to the king. This is not mm. his simple, simple will to power or will to exert justice. It's grounded in his own fear of the Lord, as it says, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That this one is properly ordered to God, and out of that proper ordering yeah. is able to give good order to others, and that is attractive, right? There, there's something attractive to that that others are are drawn into that as well. Like the nations are rallying to him; they're they're drawn to this beauty, this good order, wisdom. I like that language of attractiveness. It links with verse five, which can be taken in militaristic terms. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins. And faithfulness, the belt around his waist, that can be taken in a militaristic sense. Like he's, he's powerful and that's fine. I think it's true. Uh, but it, it may have, those are also just clothes, you know, and even military clothes are connected to kind of a certain kind of glory and yeah. attractiveness. This is almost kind of like, wow, he like, look at him. Yeah. There's, he, there's, there's righteousness here in this nation and that draws, uh, the attention and, Ultimately, even the allegiance, verse 10. I mean, that's really strong to think of the nations rallying under the banner of the, I mean, that's pretty backward, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, especially given that the constant temptation of uh, Judah in particular uh, was to make alliance with mm. Egypt, its old mm-hmm. enemy, uh, as a bulwark against uh, invaders from the north. Uh, as the Assyrians and the Babylonians and later Persians take their turn, you know, there's just this constant, I'm getting ahead into the, the period of Ezekiel, which is later than Isaiah, obviously, but, but that's, uh, in a way, Israel's constant temptation is to place itself under the banner of a stronger nation. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, yeah. And so this vision, um, that instills some resilience and hope in the face of the temptation to place oneself under, and it, and it's like you said, in a way, they're standing under the banner of the Lord, mm-hmm. right? And by executing justice in the name of that Lord, the one true Lord, um, the uh, in time, right? <laughs> when the time is ripe, uh, the whole relationship will be inverted, mm-hmm. and all these nations will be under Israel's banner. Well, the, maybe. The, the- <laughs> And you see a deep connection here between power and authority because the, the power of this one who is, has been given authority is the power of truth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth hmm. and by the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked, right? It's just, it's this ability to, to ha. speak what is true. And that is what 
uh, affects the judgment that's given. Like the, the word itself is affecting judgment. It doesn't, it doesn't need another, the authority of that word doesn't need another kind of power to back it up. It's simply, uh, the connection between the authority of the truth and its power to bring justice is, is linked together. And, and I think about that just existentially when I think about somebody who has that ability to speak hmm. a word such that it, it, it rallies others to them. Uh, and it's not a dominating kind of sense. It's not backed up by threat of force. It just is a true word and, and such that, uh, you're captured by the authority of what's true and you're, you're bound to it. And if not, then it's like you're, you're, you're fighting a losing battle because you're fighting against that, which is true, which everybody else knows. And this is, I mean, this is quite a figure, <laughs> you know, it's quite a, quite a person who's yeah. able to, to, to do that. And I, now, now my mind gets going into maybe Logos theology, right? Because, um, and there is some Johannine themes here as far as the spirit of the Lord resting on him. Um, uh, there are some Johannine themes that are, I think he's picked up, but that's where my mind goes next. Like, yeah. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and maybe run with that a little bit about what, what do we want to do with this? we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Aaron Perry. We're looking at Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10. It's the reading for the second week of Advent in year A of the Revised Common Lectionary that we've taken up as our uh, sort of curriculum <laughs> for Fresh Text. And uh, yeah, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about quite, this is quite a character, this figure that's being painted for us. And I think, uh, I mean, I, this is maybe too meta f- for this moment. I'll keep it brief, but uh, it, it may be healthy. I think as we move into more Old Testament texts, that we maybe even think of with the structure of our conversation that we would maybe keep the. Uh, I'm just pitching this. Try to hold ourselves back from uh, more kind of whole scripture and specifically New Testament kinds of uh, implications till the second part, this interpretation part, mm. right? I mean, that, that would be a good kind of rule of thumb to say mm-hmm. just the text as it would have been understood in the fifth century as much as possible, but we can't rule that out completely. You know what I mean? We, I think we need to go there and, and are invited to go there to the, to the, the census spiritualis as it were, right? The spiritual sense of this text, which is quoted uh, in numerous ways and alluded to even more so in the new Testament. Um, it's just the notion of Jesus as the son of David is a, a direct, uh, gesture towards this, these kinds of passages, mm-hmm. right? Not this one alone, but, um, and so, and then this spirit of the Lord resting upon this son of David, this, uh, branch out of the root of Jesse. Um, was, was it the language that comes after that or was it specifically the spirit abiding on him is that what made you think of john i was um, curious there was a different phrase well i was thinking of jesus breathing his spirit oh, on yes. the on the disciples so he's giving he's giving them their his spirit um and there's uh i mean just as the other the other baptismal stories have john has uh john gives the testimony i saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him or abide, abide yeah. with him. Um, 
and then the the notion of the branch and abiding in the abiding in Christ. Ah, uh, I'm of the vine, you are the branches. <laughs> um, so those are those are just some of the initial observations. Yeah, and, no, that's great. And I mean, wolf and lamb. I mean, those are those are prevalent in John as well. A very different different themes, more specifically used for John, but it's still in the in the realm of imagination that's happening here. Yeah, all of the imagery in general. But even this vision, I mean, the specific idea in verse 9, right, that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, right? I mean, that's just like the all the authors of the New Testament, right? Just with each in their own way, mm-hmm. but there's just this basic consensus is that that event is at least having its crucial moment of emerging mm-hmm. in Jesus, right? That's why they would refer to him as, in, you know, we beheld his glory, right? It's, it's the, the, he's revealed himself, right? Mm-hmm. He reveals his glory, uh, the way John puts it. Um, that's again, just one way of putting it, but they yeah, all yeah. have this kind of common, um, this interpretation of Isaiah that what was being anticipated here that, that may have come to fruition in some way during the exile and return of Israel, but that, uh, it's crucial fulfillment takes place in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which then unfolds in the, the, the mission to the Gentiles that flows out of that at Pentecost and comes to its ultimate fruition then at the end, uh, in the return of Christ. I mean, these are just, uh, you can't not be drawn there. Uh, when you preach on a text like this in Advent, at least in particular, you know what I mean? Um, I'm trying to think about, I'm trying to think about these verses for, uh, three through five in light of crucifixion and resurrection as well, Hmm. that, um, the judgment that God has for the needy and the justice that God gives for the poor, um, is, is enabled by the cross precisely because that's the posture that Jesus takes Hmm. right? the form of the slave and then is vindicated his, that, that act of justice that Jesus takes is vindicated by the resurrection that, that this is, this can be seen as these words, played out over over a story played out in in sequential events oh man yeah the whole if if this were to turn into a chronology and you want to be careful with this kind of reading of old testament texts but it almost play, plays like a chronology of the first and final coming of jesus right you know he comes the spirit of the Lord rests upon him at the mm. beginning in the baptism, okay. right? Yep. He, he embodies this particular kind of spirit, right? Um, and then, like you said, his own death and resurrection as the enactment of that justice. And then, you know, he breathes out his spirit then upon them, right? And gives the word to his people and then they go forth. Mm. And then the final vision of six through um, nine is the final outcome of all that in his second coming right mm. again i wouldn't i don't think that's what isaiah is thinking i don't think that's you know what i mean like the point of the text at on its first level um but it's more the other way around it's that 
the very story of Jesus and the hope of his return when the first Christians were telling that story, right? But making sense of it by reading passages like this yeah. and saying, look, this, the, the very narrative of scripture as a whole and even the narrative flow of, of a famous passage like Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 kind of fits the, the overall structure of the, the work of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the more appropriate way I think of quote Christological readings of Isaiah is when you kind of, or the prophets is when you maybe attend to a kind of overall atmosphere or structure rather than, oh, he fulfilled this exact verse at this exact yeah, yeah, moment. Yeah, right. I mean, I think Matthew and the New Testament writers are allowed to do that, but like us being doing that, we need to be careful with like, yeah. <laughs> these kind of one-to-one yeah. prediction <laughs> yeah. thinking, you know, because it could just get really cheesy and actually ironically ignore the text right in front of you that's not speaking in literal ways, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's using this kind of poetic language to describe events to come. I don't know if that resonates with you as a kind of general way of approaching it, but it does. It, it's like, uh, it's like reading a story for its themes rather than for its specific yeah. words and for its specific phrasing. Whereas that does, which is not to say that within the story, there might be actual phrases that would still line up and were meant, are meant to be echoes, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but it's a both it's a both and right yeah. like what what imagine what an imaginative scene does the story invoke that might have similarities or contrasts to mm-hmm. other uh such to other such imaginative scenes that other stories might might invoke right yeah so it's not it's not losing forest for the trees but it's also taking a good look at the trees from time yeah, to time as well right so it's a both both those things happening together yeah, this picture of the spirit, I, this is going even further afield. Uh, but of course the, the, you know, in the, in the ancient church, they talked about the, there were actually three different spiritual senses, right? The spiritual, the, the Christological sense, right? How a, how an old, how an Old Testament passage, uh, signifies its fulfillment in Christ. And then there was the, uh, the anagogical sense, which is the, how it signifies what's to come at the very end, which I think we have a little bit of here, perhaps in the second half. Um, but then the, what was called the tropological sense, which is the moral sense, how this would be applied to our own lives in the present between the first and, and final coming of Christ. Um, and in that framework, I mean, verse two, which I was not aware of this at all. And on the off chance that there's one listener out there who hadn't heard of this idea um, until later in life, like I did <laughs> and would like to now, maybe this is their very moment, right? That there is this longstanding tradition of speaking of the gifts of the Holy spirit. And I don't know about you, but growing up um, in the kind of churches I grew up in, when we talked about the gifts of the spirit, it was only those Pauline terminologies mm. from first Corinthians and elsewhere that have to do with the individual giftings as your role in the, in the, the church, which is of course a really important notion, but there's this whole long tradition that dates way back into the ancients, uh, the, 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 the church fathers that would use this very passage to talk about the general gifts of the spirit, the, the, the gifts that the spirit gives to all believers mm-hmm. in and through Christ, because Christ has the spirit and we have his spirit. And so this was a sort of favorite passage. Maybe you're familiar with mm. that tradition. I'm not mm. sure. So they would identify these and discuss them at great length, right? Um, especially because the, a lot of these early church 
fathers were uh, grew up in the Greek culture that would speak of certain virtues. And this conveniently lines up with some of the standard virtue lists outside the Christian tradition. Uh, right? You see it. You, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, right? The ability to deliberate, prudence, it goes mm-hmm. with that. Um, and uh, uh, s- strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, right? And then Right. And then it goes on from there. Right. But the idea that these are the kind of basic gifts that the Holy Spirit grants to, uh, to every Christian, right. Is where we we're being granted, you know, wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength or courage. That was actually trans gets translated courage in the, in the, uh, the Greek, uh, Old Testament. Um, and the knowledge and fear of the Lord. I just think that's super cool. Right. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't do anything for you, but <laughs> uh, I'm wondering how I would bring this into a class I teach. Is what you're doing? Is. Tell, <laughs> tell us, brainstorm out loud. Oh, for us. <laughs> well, it's um, um, it's building a, a pastoral theology that is Christocentric, ah. and so asking questions around what's a pastor ask, has to ask the question, what's a Christian. And to ask a question, what's a Christian has to ask the question, what's a human being? And then right. lining Jesus up as the true human, as the Christ, and as the, the good shepherd, right? He's the answer to all of those. But, but forming your, your question from that, or forming your answers on top of those things so that those things aren't structured hierarchically, but are structured always pointed towards Christ. And then seeing how, um, gifts are given to those in pastoral ministry. In order not to be set above the church, but in order to be gifts to the church to help them fulfill what they're given. And now seeing those corporate gifts, wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, fear of the Lord, as being given to the church, not to be Uh. against the world, but for the sake of the world. To help the the world see what is justice, what what is true, and not with a sense of needing to force our truth and justice onto the world, but so that just as the nations here are being are rallying to the Lord or to the, the, the Lord's anointed. Um, so what could the world be rallied to the church as the church embodies these virtues, which, uh, are easily, you could see as being grounded Christologically being grounded in this one who grows up from the stump of Jesse. I think that was pretty awesome. <laughs> so, so, that, think, so that's where I'm going. That's what, that's yeah. what that was. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, and it's it's striking. It goes back to a theme that you pointed out earlier uh, that comes out in the second half of verse four. Um, when you pointed out that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, yeah. right? Uh, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked, which I just realized is a little chiasm there, by the way. Um, A-B-B-A, right? Hmm. <laughs> strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Anyway, yeah. so these, this very violent imagery combined, right, with this very seemingly powerless thing of, bear, of just speech, right? Um, yeah. Now, this could just, I mean, this could be ancient language of just, oh, he's commanding his forces to go out and kill a bunch of people. But given the rest of the imagery in six to yeah. eight, there's no reason to take it that way. Right. It should be taken in light of what comes before is that he's deciding he's a good judge and how do judges work. A judge is one of the few people, even in modern culture, a judge is one of those few people who can create realities, realities simply by speaking. Mm-hmm. 
Do you know what I mean? There's the sacramental power of mm-hmm. the court, mm-hmm. even in the modern age, right? You just kind of say that such and such is constitutional and it is, right? It's like, it just, yep. and whole realities are, can be created simply by reading something, a decision from the bench, mm-hmm. right? And so the kind of power of the word of a just word though, right? Um, that you highlighted earlier really harks back to verse two, right? Is you have to have the spirit of the Lord and these kinds of virtues and notice how many of these virtues actually are what the ancients would refer to as intellectual virtues, right? In other words, virtues of the mind as in contrast to virtues of the will, the virtues that make it make us so we can do something. These are virtues that make us so that we can know something or understand, right? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, and maybe fear of the Lord, but definitely four out of six of these, right? Are Mm -hmm intellective virtues, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And only strength and maybe fear of the Lord, depending on how you interpret that phrase are explicitly kind of terms that we would associate with doing things. Right. And so it's because he's able to see the world, the way that God sees it. Maybe, I don't know if that's a good phrase or not, but I'll just call it a, there's a divine way of seeing the world Mm -hmm. that makes it possible for this you know, this branch of Jesse to be such a just and so attractive ruler. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that strikes you, but my mind, my mind is going to St. Augustine in the confessions when he goes on this discussion of, uh, he, he, he wants to submit to the (laughs) truth of God and, and, um, but he eventually comes down to saying like there's there's two wills right and 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 they're they're kind of at odds that 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 uh that his mind is telling is telling him to do this and yet isn't it's not happening um he he has the ability if he was so if he would so will it but there's another aspect of his will that is not willing it and so this is this is this <laughs> this big battle and you get a sense of like uh too long at at odds within oneself will just tear a soul apart mm-hmm. and so we can't stay in that position of wrestling so I'm seeing this as here comes one who is a beacon of light to say, here is what's true, right? They have properly discerned. They're communicating that truth by their word. And those who will rally to him are those uh, who, in a sense, submit to the authority of the truth. Even, even those who, people who persist in injustice, that's a, that's, a, that's a very heavy burden to bear, to persist in acting unjustly yeah. and that was that's the other image that augustine uses he has this it's at, at the translation that i'm reading is from a person named sarah rudin and and she translates augustine saying that he carried this big burden of nothing hmm. and he has this very heavy burden of nothing and i'm thinking about the 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 ones who are letting down their persistence against the way the world is actually set up to run in structure and order and and beauty uh, them letting this down and be rallying to this one who's able to communicate the truth. All right. And here's the distinction that is still here. If the, if the verses six through 10 or six through eight, um, is meant to be followed up with verses three through five is that the one who is speaking truth because they properly understand and are calling others to them, right? Uh, or calling others to this way of seeing things. If that is the child, 
the child's ability ah. to speak is way beyond a wolf or a lamb or a leopard ah. or a goat or I'm a cow. You. Um, and there's a way that the animals are still drawn to us, right? Like animals are still, um, C.S. Lewis has this great line that in his house, his dog and his cat get along quite well, right? Because they're both drawn to him, you know, and, and he right. has this, humankind has this ability to actually make wolves and lambs and goats, maybe not leopards, but calves. And, you know, you still, you see it in some ways that we're able to train them to do certain things and they, they experience. Yeah, this is a radicalization of a reality we already can bear witness to. Right. That's what yeah. makes the metaphor work. Yeah. But it, it wouldn't work at all if it was just totally absurd. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You see how these other nations aren't able to articulate the truth of what oh, the child yes. is able to say. And so the child is light years ahead of them. And yet the child is also light years behind mm-hmm. the one whose truth they are speaking to. It's like they're, right. they're babbling into reality in a way that reckons others to their, to them. Like, Oh, this is true authority, right? They, they are speaking that which is true, but it's not in a way that aggrandizes Israel. It's, right. in, it's in a way that points them as a little child who is still one who is still so far, uh, uh, I want to say beneath that that's going to break it down, but is, is so clearly not the one to whom that they are witnessing. vis-a-vis the Lord, not vis-a-vis the church or something right. like that. Right. As long as you, clarify what it is that they're less than yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the right. church is the grown-ups and no, no is no. right and as long as you don't mean it that way i think it's perfect i think this yeah. is a perfect way of capturing what is a recurring theme throughout the scriptures which is that the people of god are not that special and in fact com- in terms of earthly comparison are actually less significant less important you know um and it's precisely it's it's because of god's election and revelation of himself that makes all the difference, right? Well, but that means they have something that they can say, that they know and understand something that the world doesn't see. It's not that the nations are incapable of of uh, being in service to God. In fact, they often are in service to God unwittingly and unwittingly, yeah, unwittingly right? right? Yeah. But uh, but it's precisely the 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 wittingness and willingness of of uh, God's people that makes all the difference. I'm just I'm just noticing now that the order of verses two and three the spirit of the lord will rest on him right it, mm-hmm. like the the this one is not one who has gone out to find the spirit of the uh-huh. lord has not gone on some great quest has right. not gone on some uh, adventure to find the spirit the spirit of the lord is the one who is resting and the response is to delight in the fear of the lord and i think that's a good way to to be ma- mindful of it when we recognize that god is the one who is on us the only thing that we do is that we, we cannot go out to get God to control him to come on. But we recognize that he is on us. Now there's a sense of proper fear and respect that, that emerges um, with the reality that God is the one who has acted. And I think that lines up with the judgment that he's giving is not in line with who he is. It's not, it's not in line from his eyes or from his ears. It's in line with, with God and God's work to give righteousness and justice to the needy and to the poor, um, that he's finding God in those, in those ways. Oh man, that's perfect. I'm jazzed. I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to figure out how to preach this text. I, I, under your, uh, sitting your feet here for 40 minutes, I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to, I'm excited about it. Let's take a quick break and come back and do some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Aaron Perry. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. 
and let's explore some uh, sermon starters. What what direction or directions uh, might one or both of us take with a text like this, just to help out our listeners? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a. I think one thing I would want to camp on, or or at least weave as a thread through the whole thing, is a spirit of hope. Because this is always pointing to a reality that is not yet, but that will be. And when, if we are mindful that um, our job, when we are mindful of what our, our job is, then we can both let down our expectations of ourselves, that we are not the ones who are making the wolf and the, the mm. lamb lie down together. We're not the ones who are bringing this kind of peace, but we are the ones who are testifying to it. And it has to be started with a sense of hope. They can't be started in a sense of guilt or shame or right. desperation. And some t- those, but those can be powerful motivators. And sometimes we can operate out of that. Yeah. That, well, unless, unless we get our whole act together, then, then this will never happen. No, it's, it's because this is going to happen. Then how is God starting this at work in me? So that the hope that I have that God will reorder and orient my life properly, um, that that will have an effect around the world by God's grace. Um, and if it doesn't, then I'm still, truly born witness. I mean, that's the, yeah. that is the, the paradox of so much of scripture is that a, a true bearing of witness will have great effect except for the martyrs. And then <laughs> it'll still have great effect, but it's just a different kind, right? Yeah. How long? Lord? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so this bearing, but that's what we're called to do is to bear yeah. faithful witness and to bear true witness. Um, so that's good. And that, that is the posture of hope. Right, like the the posture of the saints who have gone before is a posture of hope, still anticipating resurrection, and that can be, I mean, so to bring it back into virtues, one of the theological virtues of right. hope that can be an orienting virtue for us. That I think, um, not a corrective, but offers a more robust picture of the church. Because I think we often camp out on faith and love, like how do we stay loyal and how do we express love? But hope is something that I think our world is in desperate need of seeing. And so I think I think hope is something that I want to keep coming back to in this passage. Yeah, I appreciate that that as a place to start when you talk about the spirit of hope that's in the text and that ought uh that can and and should be um embodied in in whatever sermon we preach. I, it makes me remember uh, I I may have mentioned this last spring on the show but um one of my teachers who I first kind of learned some of the explicit skills of exegesis from Steve Lennox, who I know you know as well, and many of our hearers are familiar with, and he's the president of Kingswood University now, um, but was a professor of Bible uh, at IWU back in the 90s when I was a student. And and he had these 10 steps of kind of exegesis. I should probably rattle them off sometime uh, on the on the program, but I'll, we'll leave that to the side for now. And one of them, the one that I struggle with the most was atmosphere, the atmosphere of the text. And maybe it was just my, uh, kind of rigid scientific tendencies that I was like, Oh, I don't understand what that means. You know what I mean? But, but as the years have gone by, that has become so crucial mm. to good exegesis for me is to really, um, lean into like, what is the overall atmosphere of this text? And it's, and it's occurring to me now as we're speaking, although this is making explicit, I think a theme in a lot of our conversations is you and I have often come to a place where we'll be like, man, whatever, however you preach this, it should feel X Mm. or feel Y. And it hasn't been the same every time. It's often been this kind of, you know, and I hear what, what I'm hearing you say is that the atmosphere of this text is an atmosphere of hope. Mm -hmm. 
And if, if my sermon is not embody an atmosphere of hope, even if I get all the details right in my sermon, yeah. I've probably contradicted the spirit of the text, yeah. you know, and that's a way of capturing the spirit versus the letter, as it were, of the text. And, and, and I appreciate that so much because then that can be a principle of selectivity, right? If I'm going to go on a particular side in a sermon and you ask myself, is this going to inspire hope? Right. Yeah, that's uh, right. Or especially illustrations. Yeah. Sometimes a really good illustration makes your point really well, but it doesn't stir the atmosphere that matches the sermon. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So you mm-hmm. could tell a story that illustrates a concept mm-hmm. about judgment or something here that might, uh, you know, uh, not fit the atmosphere. Yeah. You've so got- I think that's good. I think that's good homiletical advice implicit in what you said specifically with this text, but I think that's a good rule in general. What kind of vibe does this text have and how can I make sure to, you know, hold myself accountable to that in yeah. my sermon prep? Yeah. You know, there's, there's a way that we have to, depending on the congregation, of course, but a congregation that is one that has a measure of affluence and power and education, it was difficult to enter into this passage to know what judgment looks like as good news. Right. You know, like it's, it's ones yeah. who are facing, I mean, but people do, people do know what it's like to have a bad boss. Yeah. They do know what it's like to be treated by bullies at work. Uh-huh. They do know what it's like to have a spouse that yeah. can, yeah. can be unpredictable. And, and so you just gotta, you just gotta use some of the mag- those imaginative things to get them into a case that, that when do, where do you see acts of injustice that the, the one acting unjustly either thinks that no one will do anything to challenge them or that nobody mm-hmm. will care if they, if they knew. And we all have different scenarios where it's like, I, I want to see an outcome if for no other reason, except there's, there's, it's true that there's accountability, that mm-hmm. somebody is in charge that cares about something right being done. And when you do that, you can get into here and that does inspire hope, right? Like, like once, once you get that hook into what's the scenario where a person would love for a person of true and right authority to give a definitive word about what is true that inspires. And I mean, like I think about times, like I got a speeding ticket and it was not fair to get that speeding ticket. And the person who had the authority in that is the one who made a mistake. And I like, would somebody please just recognize <laughs> that, that, and, and, you know, if you're a principal person, you know, um, sideline, clearly, I think I'm a principal person now that I'm using <laughs> myself as the illustration. So forgive my arrogance, but I was like, you know, it's not even about the ticket. It's about that, that there's a, there's a miscarriage of, of justice here. And if you can find whatever that hook is, we all have a sense of desiring justice. I think mm-hmm. that, that we, you just need the right the right uh, hook into the person, but to help your congregation feel that then they can experience a deeper rooted kind of hope, right? That, that, that's a, that's out of when we recognize that th- something is not right, that we long to see right. The text says it will be made right. That's when you can start to get hope stirred up. Yeah. That's a good insight that there's a kind of uh, pr- the preamble to hope yeah. as it were is to be, in that is the desire for justice. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, and sometimes it helps people see where they are in injustice. Yeah. Right. Cause it, it's a world of injustice. So everybody has experienced injustice in some way mm-hmm. and to help them see where they have experienced it. And perhaps by slant, how they have contributed to contributed it as, as well. well. And that yeah. can be a turn yeah. in the sermon. Yeah. I, I could imagine be rallied to the one who's bringing justice. Yeah. Right? I could imagine, uh, a sermon where I sort of 
uh, am implicitly or even explicitly inviting the congregation to sort of identify with the lamb and the goat side of the equation in verse six. And at some point to turn to say, but sometimes we're the wolf and the leopard, Mm -hmm. right? We're the ones, Mm -hmm. you know, and the fact of the matter is, is we can't always even be trusted to identify ourselves as wolf versus lamb because back to verse three, we judge by what we see, right? We make our decision by what we hear. We, you know what I mean? Our, we, yeah, everyone has a desire for justice, but our desire for justice is deeply disordered Mm -hmm. by our own, uh, 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 self-will. Yeah. Uh, we want justice for ourselves, but it's seldom for others. (laughs) Yeah. It's disordered and it's limited. All right. You know, and it can be rightly ordered and be limited. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, which is why you need wisdom, understanding counsel. You need the spirit of the Lord to see what's what the truly just outcome would be because from the Lord's perspective, redeeming the wolf and the lamb is yeah. the end game. Yeah. Right. Uh, not just that's right. Right. The, the lamb triumphing over the wolf, yeah, right. The whole, but all being uh, in Shalom in train behind the sun, right. The, the son of David, the whole picture of the, of the whole earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord oh, as the waters cover the sea. And that, and I think that I was thinking that's creation language again yeah. with spirit and, and but like water. inverted because the sea would normally be the chaotic the kind well, of, that, that is the right. The spirit is hovering over the, over but the, even the, the sea's getting are, redeemed here. Yeah, that's as, right. Yeah. It, it's the way it's now like, knowledge, not see it's like this kind <laughs> of like threatening that, which threatens chaos and disorder is the means of God it is going to be properly ordered as well. Right. As the, as the seas are so filled with the waters, so will the knowledge of God so fill the, fill the earth. Uh, I, I was thinking maybe this ties in with the sense of atmosphere and justice as well is as parents, you can, you can enact justice in your home, but set the wrong atmosphere. Uh, uh-huh. And so, yep. and so yep. right authority is yep. followed. <laughs> yeah. So do I. Yep. Right authority is followed and, and maybe like, there's a there's a wrong that's been made right, but the the greater right, which is to raise children who are people of justice, can be missed because the atmosphere was was wrong. And I think that uh, when I think about an illustration, that helps me get at yes, um, right but limited sense of order. And then sometimes just man, I I want to bring justice because I'm just really sick of chaos in my house, and that's not about my children being rightly ordered. That's mm. just about me being at peace. Yeah. And, and so that, that I'm, it's a disordered justice. And I think that, you know, oh, th- like I could, I could, uh, identify with that and, and the longing. And here it is, man, like the longing for God to treat us as these children, you know, like we, and even as adults, like we are, we are playing around, mm. uh, holes of cobras and vipers nests all the time. We have no idea. Like we, it's like, we have no idea the danger that we come into contact with just out of our own ignorance, yeah. you know? I mean, it was one of the phrases that you used about sheep. Sheep are in grave danger, yeah. and we are sheep. You know, like we are we are children in a in a dangerous world. We have no idea. We have no idea, but we long to be treated as cherished children by by the the one to whom the child is pointing, right? Babbling after in these in these words here. Um, anyways, my mind's kind and of yet with, with that. the spirit of the Lord upon even a little child, all even the most dangerous animals are yeah. pacified yeah. and brought into yeah. peace and justice that I mean, and children are given wisdom and understanding. 
by yeah. the Spirit of the Lord. Yeah, and your <laughs> teach and, us. <laughs> yeah, and your. I mean, th- this is this is a contextual uh, challenge uh, in any in any church context, um, but especially in our day. That I know there's a lot of a lot of preaching in the evangelical churches I've spent my decades in. There's every illustration seems to be sort of family life <laughs> stuff, right? Having said that, uh, um, most people have some kind of family relations and, you know, you gotta, the fact is, is, um, you gotta start with what you know and what makes sense to you. And so when I hear you talk about, um, the kind of limited and even, uh, uh, broken kind of justice that I execute as a parent, like that just really cuts to the heart mm. and is a way that for me to be able to, stir up uh, a desire for, you know, true justice and for the spirit of the Lord to be on me. And then out of that, to find the words to uh, invite others uh, into this hope for justice. Yeah. It just really clicks. And I mean, I think twice a week, probably I say to my, uh, one of my children, Hey, sorry for my tone earlier. I, I stand by everything I said, but not the way I said it. Yeah, I've used yeah, that yeah. phrase regularly and I, and I don't share that with it as a triumph. It's as a confession where it's like, usually like, yeah, pretty much everything I said, I was right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you were in the wrong and you know, but man, just the whole tone, the whole atmosphere yeah. of my quote justice was, was undermining hope, was demoralizing yeah. you yeah, rather yeah, than. Yeah inviting you into a better way of relating to your siblings or to me. Yeah. Right. And when I think of that, then I think about what is the kind of justice that's attractive and, and I, whether you tell the Augustine story or not, it's so striking that whole thing you told at the end of the last section before the break, right. You were talking about what he was seeking after. Right. And it couldn't help I, the whole time you're talking. I couldn't help but think that verse two this spirit is what he saw in Ambrose, right? He saw in another person, right? Um, a spirit of wisdom and understanding yeah. and of counsel and strength and knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's what he saw in him. That's what was attractive to him. Yeah. Even though he didn't fully get it, didn't fully understand it, didn't fully want to submit to it. You know, that's where the root of Dressy, the vine, again, stretching the metaphor, but go for it, baby. Uh, as a, as a kind of the poetic work that is preaching, right? That out of the stump of Jesse rises the true vine that is the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, um, upon whom there are many branches, mm-hmm. you know, and who, you know, we often, our knowledge of the true vine Jesus comes through one of his branches, right? Yeah. And who, and even just asking that question has a kind of hope question because it makes things possible, you know, that w- when you describe like if you were to take all the things that make a saint a saint and just like write them down, they can make us kind of feel guilty, but you actually are like around a saint and it makes it does make you feel guilty, but it gives you hope because it yeah. makes it possible. Yeah, You're like, yeah, Oh, yeah. look. <laughs> yeah. That, that's how C.S. Lewis described Charles Williams. Williams. Right. One, one that when he was around him, just, just made him stand up, made him want to be, uh, be a better person. So, thought he was a better person, right? Didn't, didn't shove him down. It was so just, there's a second one, elevation. right? Yeah. So, you know, Augustine to Ambrose, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis to Charles Williams. I think of all the way that the sisters in St. Uh, Therese of Lisieux's, uh convent 
spoke of her as just the kind of embodiment of love and joy that she was yeah. and how it made them want to pursue holiness because yeah. she just lived it. Yeah. And, and whichever of these or some other illustration that can be offered as just a kind of indirect sign of the kind of hope of this spirit, this justice that's meted out with such peace and attractiveness mm -hmm. because it's good for us, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and then, uh, again, this isn't like a whole sermon outline, but it's, it's kind of speaking of, of how Christ embodies this, but I think it would be a mistake actually to just kind of only speak to that. Ah, see, Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled this. Yay. Right. It's yeah. But the whole reason he fulfilled it to actually fulfill this passage, it would actually not be a fulfillment if only Christ bore this spirit. <laughs> Right. The whole point is that it blows out from there. He yeah. speaks his word and his breath. That's right. And the, there's knowledge over the whole earth, the way the waters fill the sea. Right. Yeah. That's the point of it is that it's also happening in our lives too. Yep. I don't know. I don't yeah. know how that clicks with you, but well, it clicks. <laughs> clicks enough <laughs> to wrap clicks. it up. It's been an hour, right? <laughs> can, can I tell one atmosphere? Oh yeah, yeah. Right? Do, okay. it, do it, do it, do it. Is this, this is what came to mind. And if you want preachers to kind of get, get that sense of it, I can't remember what the talk show was, but you remember the show Lost and Benj yeah. Benjamin Linus? Yeah. Is they had the fellow who plays that character. They had him on the, on the show and they had him read Little Boy Blue, Go Blow Your Horn in, in the character of <laughs> oh, Benjamin Linus. Man. And suddenly it's like, it's terrifying, right? It's, it, the wow. atmosphere is terrifying, even though the text is the exact same because of the, the character out of whom these words come. Wow. And that I think is a char is a way to, for me to think about atmosphere is like, and this is a good check on the preacher's heart, right? Is, yeah. Can you ask yourself, how will the congregation hear a text because it's coming through me? Yeah. And will they, right. will they hear it with wisdom and, uh, understanding and counsel and knowledge? Cause if they do, then you can preach a variety of texts. You can preach hopeful ones. You can preach cautioning ones. Yeah. You know, if they if they have trust in the wisdom of of the pastor, then then they'll get it right. They'll they'll pick up what the atmosphere is about, in um, and it'll be hopeful. It won't be Pollyanna ish, right? It won't be just you know close your eyes to evil in the world. It'll be about uh, a reckoning. Hmm. It won't just be about the angry preacher, right? It'll be it'll it'll be the true sense of what of what it is based on the character of the preacher. And so as I'm thinking, I'm like, man. It's hard work to preach because mm -hmm. it's, it's spiritual formation, man. Like you got to be yeah. involved in your own spiritual life, uh, in order to preach truly. Yeah. Thank God that his spirit comes to us before we're yeah. worthy of his spirit. Yeah. Hard work, but in that kind of weird way of being worked on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's because you can't just conjure it by your own effort. Yeah. And yet it does, uh, take us in wild places. And I think I'm hearing you say that, that. Ultimately, the atmosphere of our sermons flows from character. Mm -hmm. Atmosphere follows character. Mm -hmm. And so the deepest question is not what kind of atmosphere am I conjuring through my the poetry of my preaching? Um, but is this uh, the spirit that is coming upon me and shaping me? And that, that, that character is the most fundamental. If you, if you preach on the wolf living with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the goat and the calf and the lion, they're, they're young coming together and you're a jerk on social media to people who disagree with you. 
It's over. Yeah. You can't do it. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like it's like uh, preaching on love whenever you're just a yeah. And I'm hearing you say that not just as a credibility issue, but it's deeper than just credibility. It's actually it actually creates a, a kind of cognitive dissonance that makes it next impossible yeah. for these words to be yeah. as transformative as they could be. Having said that, the word still manages to get preached even when we're <laughs> not that we have to be perfect, but. But it, that, that's the invitation. Which isn't of the how preacher, you said it, right? Yeah. That, that's the invitation of the preacher into the text first, right. right? How does this preach to me? How does this reform me? How does this reorder my life before I dare preach a word about somebody else's life being ordered by this word? And so it's it's good, right? I mean that, and that's the it's good news. It's yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing you say, one way to apply that to the preaching life would be to say that a text like this, um, that maybe. Uh, the whole text, but especially verse two, that maybe the first day in the week, if you're taking a week to prepare um, a sermon coming up this Sunday, that the first you set aside the whole first day to just prayerfully seek that this spirit of the Lord would be on you yeah, awesome. and, and really seek that. Awesome. Um, and then trust that the rest of the pieces will fall into place. And even if they're, you know, half as good sermon preached out of a, out of a, you know, spirit of wisdom and understanding, you know, is 10 times better than this beautifully formed sermon that is ultimately being judging with what our own eyes see yeah, and our own ears hear. Yeah. Wow. Well, I feel convicted as a preacher, uh, but, but excited, it, like the kind of conviction that liberates, not the kind that. Well, my job here is done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Aaron, for the time you've given. Yeah. Thanks to all our listeners. As always, be sure to rate and review us when you get a chance and share and subscribe uh, to the podcast on whatever uh, app you use. And uh, thanks, as always, to uh, Todd Bouchong and Eric Fisher for all the great work they do. I can't imagine uh, producing this week in and week out without them. And uh, yeah, thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>